I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? Yeah, I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast, Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're here on our Wednesday afternoon midweek show. True. How you doing, man? Good. You? Great. As always, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm Do excited. I have fluff on my hair this time? No, it looks good. Just perfect. Just stubble. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's it. Just stubble on your hair. Go check out Monday. Sam had um, fuzz in his hair. Yeah, for about two hours. Uh-huh. Why are they blaming Just me? Why are they blaming like me here? Um, appreciate everybody that joins us live on YouTube. Of course, hit that thumbs up button like everyone go. else does. Right up. Got to go right off the bat. Got to get right into that. Um, on the show today, we've got Robert Mays from the Athletic Football Podcast. As I mentioned, top five NFL podcast, much mm-hmm. like us. Um, Robert Mays is going to be on the show later. He's a Bears guy, so he knows the Bears inside and out. We're going to talk Bears, Commanders. That's right. It's going to be an exciting Thursday night football game. We're going to get into your emails, of course, and we're going to do a little Monday night football review, which I know could take an hour in and of itself, but um, we'll try. See how quickly we can go through. You want to get right into to Monday night? Well, apparently, if it's going to take an hour. So, Chiefs 30, Raiders 29. Yeah. Incredible back and forth game. Raiders were up 17 to nothing. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs make the comeback. We've got, you know, two point conversion attempts with four minutes left to take the lead. I mean, there was a lot of stuff here. Fourth down decisions. Uh, the Raiders hanging tough, just but but just not enough in this one. Where do you want to start? <laughs> I don't know. So early in the game, it felt like remember a couple of years ago, the Raiders had a similar game against Kansas City where they played them unusually well um, for no real discernible reason. It just it just worked for some reason against them, and it was like, oh, the Raiders actually gave Kansas City a really hard game here. Um, this felt like that, and and then kind of started to unravel for them a little bit. And Kansas City started to come back. The Raiders shot themselves in the foot a couple of times as well, and, and eventually they ended up not doing enough to, to keep hold of that win. But at least early it felt like this was going to be another one of those games where the Raiders were actually going to shock people and pull off an upset. So early on you have a fourth down decision by the Raiders in their own territory. They go for it on fourth and one, and they don't just go for it. They go for the home run play Mm. action they hit Devontae Adams up top 58 59 yard touchdown whatever it was it's like okay Raiders are playing to win and you know our our listeners here hear me all the time talk about Derek Carr and his aggressiveness and he was taking some shots in this game I liked the aggressiveness that the Raiders had Josh Jacobs has been running just unbelievably in particular these last two weeks he was running hard and quick I mean he was as good as it gets the other night The Raiders had the formula, right? I mean, it was like aggressive on fourth down. They're running, passing, creating chunk plays. They're doing a lot of good stuff. But they get up 17 to nothing. There was, you know, they they kicked a field goal on fourth and one instead of holding holding the ball, trying to go for that one. Then the Chiefs started to mount their comeback. You have Travis Kelsey, just one of the weirdest stat lines you'll ever see. Seven catches. We have like 30 yards, not even. Four touchdowns. It was all goal line stuff. Mahomes um, plays well again, spreading the ball around. You have another terrible roughing the passer call on Chris Jones. It's just a lot going on in this game. 
Yeah, the the Travis Kelsey thing is interesting because people obviously when a guy has that kind of performance and he's just every time they get the red zone it's an easy touchdown and you immediately see everybody going well how hard is it to cover one guy like that's their only weapon and they can't take him away like what are the Raiders doing I and I think you see this a lot where it's not like everything has a consequence you know whatever you decide to dedicate your attention to you're automatically exposing something else so there are a lot of teams that do exactly what people are talking about. And it's like, okay, we get to the red zone. We're going to take away Travis Kelsey. We're going to dedicate as much resource to him as humanly possible. And that's how you get those walk-in touchdowns to other people that we've been talking about in previous weeks, you know? So it does happen, but it doesn't stop the Chiefs. Like, it just stops Travis Kelsey. Ultimately, the goal here is to hopefully stop them scoring, not to specifically eliminate one guy from scoring. And I think you would just end up with a catch-22 situation of, well, do we let Travis Kelsey do it four times or do we throw three guys on Travis Kelsey and watch four different guys do it? I mean, the ironic thing is on third and 15 later in the game, they did put two people on Travis Kelsey. There was a point where they did. They put Cleland Farrell, who is a defensive lineman, directly on top of him to press him and then had another defensive back ready to cover, actually cover him. Uh, Furl, of course, gets a uh, hands-to-the-face penalty for an automatic first down. But the, uh, the idea was there. We're going to take two people, lose a pass rusher or a coverage defender, and put him on um, Travis Kelsey to stop him. You have the Chris Jones play where he – I mean, it was one of the best plays of the season, right? He sacks he – he also – he rushes off the edge. We were talking about Aaron Donald, how he was uh, beating Tyler Smith, the left tackle from the Dallas Cowboys, as an edge rusher. This was Chris Jones, who dabbled as an edge rusher last year, but he rushes off the edge here, wins to the edge with speed, and then in the same breath strips the ball from Derek Carr, has control of the ball, tries to brace himself going down. He does put some of his 300-plus pounds on top of Derek Carr, but that all got called a roughing the passer penalty. Are we talking roughing penalties? A little later bit later. So I don't want to get into this too much other than to say it was Fine. a absurd call, like madness. Okay. Among the other calls, we have the Chiefs. Uh, as the Chiefs, so the Chiefs ended up taking the lead. They were just, uh, they're a better team. They came back. Mahomes, still incredible when you when you put them in a hole. They, he's, uh, Mahomes led Chiefs 12 and 9 yeah. when they're down 10 beyond the first quarter. 12 and 9. That's crazy. Yeah, the, the they pulled up at some point during the game the best win percentages of you know current quarterbacks in those situations. And Mahomes is twelve and nine. Brady, I think, was forty five percent or something win rate, and that was the best. Like he was the best by a distance to the next person who was like thirty percent or whatever. Like the Mahomes Chiefs combination's ability to come back from big deficits is. I think fair to say unprecedented in not just current NFL, but NFL history. I mean, maybe yep. somebody did it a couple of times and has a similar, you know, percentage record on a small sample size thing. But I, I need to see that all time list for that. I doubted there's anybody in the same ballpark. So we have the Chiefs. They've they've taken the lead. And then they're driving. They have to settle for a field goal. They miss the field goal to go. The field goal would have put them up four, I believe. Is that right? And they miss it. And instead, is that what it was? Anyway, they miss the field goal. Instead, there's a defensive hold. Automatic first down on like fourth and 14. Gives the Chiefs another opportunity. I'll find the exact scores here. Chiefs score another touchdown there. So they're winning. 
Raiders come back. So they're, they're, up by, they're up by seven, right? They're up a score. Raiders come back. Derek Carr, Raiders, they make the comeback. Carr made some incredible throws in this one too. Not just Devontae early, but you know, kind of runs up in the pocket, hits the deep ball, uh, kind of like what Geno hit on, uh, on Sunday. So Carr's looking pretty good on some big throws. So the Raiders get within one. There's about four-something left, and they go for two. Mm-hmm. Which is something, you know, you see a lot at the end of the game now with one minute left, with 30 seconds left, but with four minutes left. What were you thinking when the Raiders went for two to just all they want to do is go up one with four plus left in the game? I think they played this entire game as if they were underdogs, which is to me the correct way of approaching a game against Kansas City. Assume they're better than you, you know, not out loud to your teammates because that's generally not a good morale thing, but in terms of play calling and how you approach going for two or kicking or uh, when you punt versus when you go for it, assume they're better than you are, particularly when it comes to their offense versus your defense, and don't trust your defense. Like, assume they're going to get a score if they need to get a score and try and put yourself in situations to get ahead and to steal drives and put yourself in the lead, not relying on needing to get another drive and another score just to take the lead. I'm all for going to try and put yourself in the lead, even knowing that it, uh, it necessitates them putting points on. So the, the two ways of looking at this, when, it, when I first heard it, I was like, what's the point? You, know, you, you're gonna, you still have to stop Mahomes and the Chiefs from kicking a field goal, which is true. Mm-hmm. But I think the reasoning here was you go up one. Yes, it's tough to stop Mahomes and the Chiefs, whether they're trying to kick a field goal or not. If you, if you do get it and you're up one, you are forcing the Chiefs they're still not going to be going for it on fourth down, right? They're still trying to get a field goal. But I think where it almost worked is when they don't get it, you're down one now, and the Chiefs got a little conservative, right? They just started throwing some screens to Sky Moore, and you you have to get a stop. You have to get a stop when they're in their four-minute run-it-out offense. And you did, right? You kind of – they kind of lured the Chiefs into being a little bit more conservative, where if it was tied – if it's a tie game, you kick the extra point, it's a tie game, the Chiefs aren't going to be conservative. They're not just throwing screens to Sky Moore. They're running their offense, of which you hadn't stopped since the first quarter. So it kind of worked. The, the Raiders get the ball back. They, they have a long field to go. They start moving the ball. Derek Carr makes a beautiful throw on third and one to Devontae Adams, just barely can't get his feet inbounds. And then the fourth and one comes up again. They run up. They, they've got no timeouts left. The Raiders, about 40-something seconds left, and they go for it all. They go for the kill shot again. They go... Play action, up top, Hunter Renfro and Devontae Adams collide, and it was an anticlimactic finish. Hunter Renfro takes out Devontae Adams, I think is probably a more accurate way of describing that particular play. Yeah, Hunter Renfro almost got called for targeting on his own guy. Yeah, on uh, his own guy. His own guy. It's not the way you draw it up, Steve. <sighs> yeah, I, thought, I honestly thought the Raiders were going to sneak it. I thought they were just going to go quick sneak, spike, because they, were, they needed a field goal to win. You have Daniel Carlson, who is, uh, you know, in that Justin Tucker-ish type of range. He's the second tier of great kickers right now. Hadn't missed forever. He got all those stats. They only needed about 15 yards. He didn't need to go for the touchdown. And honestly, do you really want to score a touchdown and make the Chiefs come back? And Anyway, I really thought they were just going to go move the ball and get into field goal range, but they didn't. Chiefs hold on 30-29. to Exciting game all around. Yeah, I think it showed that Kansas City is still as good as it gets in the AFC. Incredible game coming up this week, Buffalo against Kansas City, like a legit AFC title game preview type of thing. Um, I think it also showed that 
the Raiders aren't as bad as they've been early in the season, and they are capable of more, particularly on offense. And maybe it is simplifying things and going, you know what, to hell with it. Devontae's out there somewhere. Let's just heave the ball in that direction. Like, there's, I, mean, it was, I think there's an element of that. It was more than that, though. I mean, they, they're coming out with six offensive linemen. They're running the ball. They've got a fullback. I mean, it was um, – I name-dropped Greg Rosenthal all the time, but, you know, I was on his podcast right after reviewing the game. And, his, you know, he made the point it looks like a, a, an old-school Patriots type of running attack, which I agree, you know, with Jacobs running the ball. I think they're finding their way offensively, the Raiders. You know, it's a tough system change, man. Mm. Derek Carr going from the West Coast offense to McDaniels and everything, so – Maybe it'll take some time. So encouraging for both teams, to be honest. But tough start for the Raiders being one and four. And a heartbreaker because they did so many things right in this game. Devontae gets himself in trouble shoving a camera guy afterwards. He's getting sued, is that right? Yeah, criminal and something or other. That was a we- So I've seen two – that is a fascinating example of how camera angles can change everything. I've seen two different angles of that that make that shove look completely different. The first one, which is the one that I've only seen the bad one. Yeah, that's the one that looks bad, where it looks like he just violently shoves a dude out of his way for no good reason. You see one that's from kind of behind him, where this he's walking off down the tunnel, and this guy like walks right across his path, and he just kind of sticks out his hands to be like, "Dude, you're about to run into me." Yeah, shoves him away. If you were working off just one of those camera angles, like the first one, you'd be like, "Suspend the guy. That's that's really bad. You can't do that." Second one, you'd be like camera guy kind of screwed that up like get out of his way and i honestly don't know where that lands like is that which one is it or is it neither is it somewhere in the middle i was just excited the you know yeah i was i was in on uh the twitter world that night i was doing a lot of interacting that night watching the game it was an exciting game i'm just appreciative that all my twitter followers uh were were really quick to point out that they do not condone Devontae adams behavior no, like everybody decided we got we have to quote tweet this and say this is unacceptable. You okay. can't push people. I'm just I just I'm just glad that I follow people that um, that stand up for not pushing people. Well, how about I don't condone the first angle. I second condone, angle, I'm okay with. I might condone the second angle. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe get the whole story on stuff. I don't know which one it is, and if it's you know if it's entirely the second one, I might condone that. You know, don't get in his way. Got to get that full story. Got to get more camera angles. The NFL action is in full swing here at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. We're talking touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If that's not enough, everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Right now, for every leg you can add, you can boost your winnings up to 100%. With payouts bigger than ever, why bet on football anywhere else? To make things even sweeter, you can all throw down on stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day all season long. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets if your team wins when you place a $5 bet on any football game. It's code PFF only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Type's too big again. Uh, all right, where are we going with this? We got some some emails to discuss here? Yeah, I, I, so I just wanted to drop that nugget that Andrew Siciliano had, admittedly crediting NFL research. So I don't, you know, I don't know how much credit we give Andrew. This is like third-hand yeah, yeah. information here. But I just thought it was a great stat. Um, Siciliano tweets, the Packers can pass the Bears on the all-time win list this week. They're tied with 785 wins each. It would be the first time since December the 3rd, 1921, when the league was known as the American Pro Football Association, that a team other than the Bears had the most wins in the league in league history wow 
Back then, the Bears weren't even called the Bears. They were the Decatur Staley's or whatever they were. Packers fans going to have a little celebration here? I don't know. It's a win. I, I retweeted that, and somebody on Twitter was like, there's only like five teams back there. This is a meaningless data point. Hey, what's that meaningless? It just doesn't mean what you want it to mean. Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's all fun. I mean, personally, I like, I like the merger. It's all as fun a games until somebody gets upset on Twitter. I like the merger as a cutoff. And then I think after the merger, I kind of like early 80s as a cutoff. <laughs> early 80s. And then the 90s probably needs its own cutoff. And Since maybe the 85 t- Bears. 85 Bears. Since Marino. We should do like pre-Marino, post-Marino. Pre- the 83 draft class was like a league-changed type of class. The, 80, the 84 Marino season actually would be a pretty good watershed moment of like, well, that changes things. You yeah. Know? All of a sudden, it's like, wow, you can do different things with the yeah. ball. Maybe you don't need to average 3.2 per carry. That's the other data point. I texted you this. I don't, know, I don't remember where I got this, but Patrick Mahomes now has more passing touchdowns than Troy Aikman. First yeah. NFL career. That's insane. I mean, we're Hall of Famer, Troy Aikman. Yeah. We're playing different games, man. We really are. It's different games. Even I mean, with offense okay. down this year. Aikman didn't have the longest career in the world, but still. Like, for Patrick Mahomes to cruise past Hall of Fame quarterback Troy Aikman, who played, what, 11 years, 10 years? It's still pretty impressive. Uh, it really is. So we're going to do uh, a few e- emails. Mm-hmm. I had some other stat about that, too. Brady, where, where does Aikman rank on the – I don't know. On the all, all-time list. Not that high, it's I don't think. It's like, it's not. Yeah. Because, like, Tom Brady, since Peyton Manning is retired, Tom Brady's, like, 47th on the passing touchdown list. Since his biggest rival retired. 47th all-time in touch, uh, passing touchdowns. All right. Let's get to some emails. You're going to make me look. Oh, yeah, Troy Aikman is 77th. There you go. So, look, there are, like, Brad Johnson has more career touchdowns. John Kitna has more career touchdowns than Troy Aikman. It's not that impressive a stat. Given I think my Troy Brady Aikman, stat's more impressive. Yeah, 47th given, on the all-time passing touchdown list since his biggest rival retired. Otto Graham, who played in the 1940s, has more touchdown passes than Troy Aikman. So there are look, some who think Otto Graham's the greatest quarterback of all time. Maybe this is more of an Aikman data point than it is a Mahomes data point. But still, I think it's impressive. Heard our opportunity to have Troy on the show at some point. I didn't. I just, you know, the man doesn't have that many touchdowns relative to other people. Get to the email, Sam. What do we got here? Okay, first email from somebody called Brandon Jackson. I assume not the former Green Bay running back, though it's not, it's not stated explicitly anywhere. Uh, hey, Sam and Steve. Hey, yeah, not hey. This, okay. might, this might be the giveaway here in the first sentence. Love the pod. Listen to every episode of both the main pod and the daily while working down in Australia. Brandon he could be okay, yeah, you're right. No, not enough evidence here. Could still be Brandon Jackson, right. the running back. Uh, I started following the okay. I started following the NFL in 2018. Maybe that's a, uh, and I've been a huge Vikings fan ever since. Again, the data points are stacking up. Unfortunately, uh, I've never known what it's like to have a good offensive line or anything close to it. However, based on the games I've been able to watch so far this season, as well as the PFF grades, it would seem that the Vikings line is finally getting on track. Would love to get your thoughts on how they're playing individually and as a unit. Would also love if you could go into where this turnaround from Garrett Bradbury has come from and if you think it's sustainable given it's a contract year. Also, given Christian Darasaw's emergence and Brian O'Neill playing consistently good football, where would you rank them as a tackle duo within the entire league? Cheers, Brandon. Yeah, the line's been pretty good overall. You know where it ranks in the, uh, the latest PFF offensive line rankings where that I wrote and are right up there right now on the website or the PFF app? Yeah, go check out the app. Download the PFF app. Go check out Sam's offensive line rankings. They're up to 12th. 
That's good. Yeah. It's creeping back beyond average. And they've been, you know, steadily steadily grow or steadily moving in the right direction. I think they were 19th at one point, up to 12th. Now, look, you know, you got to look at who they've played. So I, I tweeted out a quadrant graph type of deal that has essentially pressure rate and blitz rate on opposing axes, right? And four quadrants. High pressure, low blitz is an elite front four. Um, low pressure, low blitz is just, just not a good pass rush, right? So the teams who have Minnesota played, because Chicago is one of them. They have the worst pass rush in the NFL. We'll get to that later. Uh, like Green Bay. Green Bay. Detroit. So Green Bay are fine. Philadelphia. Um, Detroit are in that bad quadrant somewhere. No, they're not. They're in the – they don't get a lot of pressure, and they do blitz quite a lot. Who, which is bad. Yes, which isn't good. Uh, Green Bay – have a pretty good pass rush so that's that's fine um and philadelphia, philadelphia who are in the middle but are capable of a lot more and wrecked them when there's they one play. other team in there so you know the vikings haven't necessarily played the toughest gauntlet of pass rushes which will impact it it will but their yeah. offensive line is is dramatically improved i think so i would say you have here you, you here's want. what i High level, I would say this. Brian O'Neill has been one of the better right tackles in the NFL for a few years now. Yep. You know, top five-ish right tackle pretty sure. consistently. Christian Darasaw, he's in year year two, right? He was yep. a rookie last year. Year two for Darasaw. We liked him coming out. He showed pretty well as a rookie. He's up to an 82.5 grade. Solid. He looks very good. Ezra Cleveland and Garrett Bradbury. Both guys, Ezra hits year three. Bradbury is what, year four for him? Ezra Cleveland has graded fairly decent the last couple of years. He's continued to improve, so he had a he had a nice game last week. And Bradbury might just be taking that year four jump from I mean, he's been well below average the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And this is by far I mean it's early, but by far his best season so far, particularly in pass protection. Where he's up to a seventy two after grades in the forties and the thirties. So he's harder to explain just right off the bat, other than Year four and five, a lot of offensive linemen do take a leap forward. And I think that this offensive scheme with Kevin O'Connell is is playing to the strengths of, in particular, those two guys, Bradbury and Ezra Cleveland, um, who are lighter, more athletic, mobile type of offensive linemen on the interior. Like Bradbury is one of those classic, quote-unquote, undersized centers, you know, 300 pounds max type of deal, uh, who can get overwhelmed when he's – dealing with guys one-on-one now look to be fair in the past he hasn't been good on the move either so it's not like that explains it all but this offensive scheme there's a lot of that wide zone stuff there's a lot of things that require precision and athleticism and movement and prioritize that over strength and power and uh, vertical displacement and those kinds of things so Ezra Cleveland Bradbury I think makes sense to be better in this system than they would be outside of this system Um, so I think that goes some way towards explaining it so there you go. Vikings have uh, – did we have one of those bets? You've, I, th- I think you were reviewing our bets. Didn't we have somebody who – Oh, that's a good question. Predicted is... or guessed or hoped, prayed that the Vikings <laughs> would uh, be in the middle of the pack at least? There is a Vikings bet in there. And I, know, I remember skimming over it thinking it was absurd, even knowing that they had gone upwards in the – yeah, here we go. Somebody called Bradley Ackerley. His bet is that the Vikings will finish in the top five in PFF's end-of-year offensive line. Wow, them. They're at 12th right so now. They're up to 12th. You still have another Bears and another Lions game to go. That could help. Yeah, and look, the the top few of the offensive line rankings has been pretty stable through the first few weeks. Like it's Philadelphia, Cleveland, Kansas City, 
Patriots and the Packers are moving up there now. They're getting guys healthy. But the Bucks are up there if they can get everybody back healthy. Like, it would be an achievement to get into the top five. I think 12 up to, like, seven or eight is pretty achievable looking at the rest of the league. But top five would be a stretch. Even though best ball mania has ended, underdog fantasy is still the easiest and most fun way to spice up your football season with their Pick'em game. Just look at you, look for your favorite or least favorite player stats. Pick whether you think they'll end up higher or lower than their total number in a week's game. That simple. You can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile apps. You pick between two and five players for your Pick'em entry, get all your picks right, and you'll take home some cold, hard cash. How hard could it be, Sam? to just, you know, hit two to five picks. Right. It's simple to get started. Just head to underdogfantasy.com or download the app. Sign up with promo code PFF, and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code PFF. Get in on the action today. All right, what else do you have for emails, man? Uh, okay, next one. Where are we got? Oh, yeah, so here's where we get to the, uh, the officiating discussion, your favorite topic in the world. Officiated. There's so much good NFL Referee decisions. to discuss. Here we go. This one from this is good though. I like you'll like this angle. You will. I've tried. So just as a just as a uh, a prep, a prep thing to this discussion, go and find Sebastian Joseph Day's penalty okay. in Ultimate while I read the email. This one's from Peter Freiberg, I assume. Uh it hasn't gotten any run with the national media because, number one, it wasn't Tom Brady. Number two, it wasn't on a primetime game. And number three, the national media wants to rip Brandon Staley for his fourth-down decisions and spending time on this would detract from their narrative. But the worst roughing the passer call from the weekend was called on Sebastian Joseph Day for roughing Jacoby Brissett. By the way, this email is entitled, Jacoby Goes Full Neymar. You know what that means? I mean, I caught it after I read it. Okay. You know who Neymar is? He's a flopper. Okay, you know who he is, though? No clue. Okay. Uh, The Browns are facing third and goal from the four-yard line in the second quarter. Brissett throws an incomplete pass, and Sebastian Joseph Day breaks through the line late and puts two hands in Jacoby's chest and shoulders as Jacoby watches the result of the play he didn't – or as he watches the result of the play he didn't affect. Jacoby, knowing the NFL's crackdown on quarterback protection, jumps up and and falls to the ground like Neymar in the World Cup trying to draw a red card. It worked. The ref threw a flag, the Browns got a new set of downs, and they scored on the next play. If we're going to go to the nth degree to protect quarterbacks, and to some extent, or to some extent we probably should, then we should also penalize quarterbacks for trying to game the system. Thanks for a great podcast. Peter F. in San Diego. That I buy. Was that not a spectacular flop from Jacoby Brissett? Yeah, it was the fact that he rolled over. Also, not just that. He got pushed from the front. Not just that. Landed on his back. But when you look at the play, right? So it's described well. uh, Sebastian Joseph Day gets through the line. He's got a clear run on him, but he's too late, right? So he just shoves out two hands and pushes him. It's a little tardy. But so, you you know, if you want to say, okay, it's late. You can throw the flag anyway. Fine. But what's really key about this is that Jacoby Brissett has time to watch the incompletion, realize it's an incompletion, and then go, ah! Oh, that's like true. flop to the ground. That is true. The ball's hitting the ground as his chest is being contacted. Yes, because what I was curious about when I was watching it for the first time after reading this description is, does he have enough time to sort of realize the impact of what's happening? Or did he just like, you know, because sometimes you can hit things and it looks not as bad as it actually is. And he just goes down and it looks ugly. But he had time 
to follow the pass that he threw, realize it was incomplete, and then go, oh, you know what? See, uh, I, flag. Think, I, I think we could use NGS, the next-gen stats, the chips in the shoulders, yeah. to, to break this down. I bet if we had some, you know, we've got speed measures and all that stuff, the velocity at which he spun on the ground yeah. was faster than him going to the ground. <laughs> oh, of course. Because he, he just kind of like slowly fell to the ground and then picked up steam to roll over in his flop. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So he was going like 0.5 miles an hour, and then he's going about two miles an hour to spin over and flop. I mean, this has happened in soccer a lot where because of slow-mo replays and all that kind of thing, you can see the delay in the thinking time between whatever contact may have existed and, oh, I can get a free kick out of this. I can get a penalty here if I just dive and make it look spectacular. So you see these slow-mo replays of a guy going in, slight contact, tick, 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 ah! free kick. You know, that's, that's what Jacoby did. He looked at this. He's like, oh, I missed it. Oh, look, I can get a flag. I mean, that happens like when your kids cry and stuff like that, though. They hurt themselves and it doesn't, doesn't register yet. And then they, you know, it takes yeah, but a this few isn't, seconds. This is like, this isn't like the undeveloped nervous system of a child. This oh. is mental processing of, you know what? It's thinking time. It's like, hey, this didn't actually hurt me. But you know what? If I act like it did, I could get a penalty out of it. And it would extend our drive and we're good. <sighs> I haven't checked ultimate for the, uh, I hate looking at penalty stuff. I just I hate penalties. I hate all of it. I build I build the stuff that tracks the penalties, and yeah. I don't. I can't stand it. Where's the roughing the passers this year? So here's the thing. The NFL said they're down this year, like cut in half. So a lot of people have been talking about this, like, oh, this is just an obvious overreaction to the Tua thing, and blah blah. We're protecting quarterbacks now. Kevin Seifert had a piece that essentially debunked that, at least in terms of explicit instruction. So if this is if this week was a reaction to the Tua hit and the concussion stuff and all that protecting quarterbacks, it's, an, it's a subconscious one from officials. It's not – the league has not sort of sent out an instruction and being like, hey, you can't have a quarterback's head bouncing off the ground. If you guys see anything, throw those flags. If, the, if there, there is a reaction to it, it's entirely subconscious from officials. Now, I don't know if it is or it isn't. I suspect what we had is just a bunch of – Really, really bad roughing. The just bad calls. calls. I mean, look, there's the, there's came one after the other. There was 58 roughing, roughing the passer calls last year, by week five. This year, it's thir- we have a 32. I yeah. mean, it is almost cut in half. Right. So, I mean, look, the Grady Jarrett one, horrendous call. You can't possibly say yes. that you can't tackle a guy to the ground in the act of making a sack. So that's absurd. The Chris Jones one is maybe even more absurd. He had the ball well, at the time they threw a flag on him. Here's the thing. I can understand well, – on the Chris Jones one, I can understand the flag initially being tossed, right? Because it looks like okay. he's – Well, yeah, know, for aside from anything else, you don't know he has the ball at that point. Here's my issue. Talk it out, man. Yeah. Talk about it. And Someone from behind saw him strip the ball, Chris Jones. And there's a sky judge. Like, this is what that this guy is, in the this booth is, where is I for. Would use, yeah, just be like, look, Grady Jarrett did not whip Tom Brady to the ground. He tackled him. Pull the flag. The fact that they triple and quadruple down on this thing. Yeah. And look, I, I know they have to I try to play both sides here. They do have to explain to the pool reporter what their reasoning was. I saw him spike him to the ground. I saw him yeah. drop his weight. The problem is they're Chris not Jones. allowed to say it was a bad call. The league has to say that. Yeah. Like the, the Jerome Boger is not allowed to come out and say, hey, we 
I saw him throw him to the ground with excessive force or whatever. Just that let them term do is. it. When when a quarterback throws two interceptions and they're like, "Hey, what'd you see in that inter- interception?" Oh, I just misread the coverage. I thought, you know, I, yeah. I, I I made a mistake, right? The best quarterbacks in the world throw ten interceptions a year, five interceptions, whatever it is. They make a few mistakes mm-hmm. here and there. There's a chance, believe it or not, some of these refs might make a mistake, yeah. and it's okay to let them admit it after the fact. Now I get why they don't do it. Yeah, because the quarterback probably doesn't get death threats when he throws an interception, and the referees like I, might literally cost a team a game. The NFL, in my opinion, is really, really bad when it comes to transparency in the officiating process. I think that they believe that the more transparency there is, the more people will nitpick and focus on it and criticize it. But I think the opposite is actually true. The you know that old adage that sunshine is the best disinfectant. I think a lot of the time that's used, and I think it's probably not true. I genuinely think this is true when it comes to officiating, that other sports that have more transparency with their officiating, it doesn't make the problem go away. Like everybody, every sport in the world thinks their officiating sucks. And I think yes. generally it probably does because it's a really hard job. Like officiating a game in anything is not easy. And you're going to screw up because people do. It's quick, instant decisions and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. But all you can do is A, try and move the line in the right direction with any changes that you make. And B, the more people understand what the decision-making process is, the more easy they are to, the more easy it is for them to accept. So the Jerome Bogart thing, the fact that he actually explained it, I think is, is a good thing. I would much rather him come out and say, this is what I saw, even if he leaves out the part of, obviously that was wrong, than just say nothing, you know? And you'd be left to speculate why that happens because the obvious thing when it's completely opaque is oh it's a conspiracy the nfl doesn't want tom brady hurt so they yeah. told him to throw the flag that's silly right so all you need to do is to mic them up instead of instead of a microphone button where jerome gets to go turn to the camera then hit the button and that's when you hear what he says broadcast it the whole time so we hear the entire conversation that the officials are having and hear how the process works and if that is a problem, then then the, then the then the thing is the problem itself. Like I don't, if the if the NFL's problem is that bad things would get out if that happened, you know what I mean? Then yeah, your process is broken in the first. You don't place. even have to. You don't even have to do that, right? Like if Jerome Boger throws the flag, right? And they're in, they got you got the sky judge. The flag's on the field, and they're just like, Jerome, it's not bad. That's a that's a fine tackle. The only thing that gets hurt is his pride. Right, the, I mean that is right, but that it, is the equivalent of throwing an interception, and then you just go and you correct it. I don't care what the communication is. But explain to me what's wrong about broadcasting that conversation. I just think you probably want fewer hot mics. <laughs> but what? But okay, there's nothing but, wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. That, but right. uh, but I'm saying catching, I think you could still get the same result. Like if if he throws the flag and then you eventually pull it up. It's like, okay, he threw an interception, right? All he did was throw an interception. And guess what? The quarterback doesn't get a do-over, but the referee can because yeah. you, because the, the flag hasn't been announced yet. So mm-hmm. before he announces it, you pull it and say, there's no roughing. They do this already. Just do it a little bit more often when it's obvious. With the Chris Jones one, the same thing could have happened where the flag's thrown. Hey, I'm in the heat of the moment. The game's really fast. We're not perfect. We threw a flag. We got a quick review on it. It's not there. Yeah, I just think the, I hate how against transparency in the officiating process the NFL is, certainly relative to other sports. I think there's no downside to explaining to people with as much information as humanly possible 
why calls are made a certain way. And if there is a problem with it, then it means the process is broken. Because the only thing you don't want to get out there in public is stuff that is legitimately not good. At which point, that's the bigger issue than broadcasting and letting, you know, the occasional F-bomb hit a live mic or whatever. (sighs) The Jacoby Brissett one was pretty bad. Where would you rank that in this weekend's roughing calls? Well, I don't... So the call itself was the the least egregious of the three because like, it was at least tardy a tardy yes, push it was a late push at which point you've kind of brought this on yourself sebastian but the element of the neymar dive in there makes it the most obnoxious of the calls i think because you can't have that you, you no we this thing is hard enough already to make these like debatable judgment calls without without the soccer diving coming into this we don't we really don't need that are we on to explain the grade? No, we got one more email. Okay, before we get to it, No House Advantage is changing the game by offering the most dynamic fantasy sports platform available today. Playing pick'em contests versus other people for the shot at winning two hundred fifty thousand plus in cash. Download the app, choose a contest, select your player props, earn points for correct picks, and climb the leaderboard for your shot to win big money every day. You can also test your skills versus the house and 20x your entry. That's right, 20 times that entry if you hit all your picks. Bet on up to five player prop over-unders or individual player matchups across every major sports league, including NFL, NBA, MLB, PGA, MMA, and NASCAR. Sign up now with the promo code PFFNFL at nohouseadvantage.com or download the app on the app stores to get a first deposit match up to $25. Make sure to check out No House Advantage today and experience daily fantasy sports redefined because it's not just how you play, but also where you play. You don't want to miss out on this. You got another email? Email time. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to read you. I'm going to break this up a little bit. Hello, PFF NFL folks. Thanks for the great show. First off, I will not be providing a pronunciation guide for my last name as Sam's feeble attempts at speaking Swedish last time was far too amusing. Oh, yeah. So how do you like it? Not not like a lot. Me speaking so this Gaelic. one comes from a guy whose first name is Victor. That was easy enough. Nailed it. But a second name, I think, is Sunnershoe, Sunnershore, something like that. What now, are the double dots above the O? How is that This is work? the thing. This is Swedish, right? And from my Googling, one of the consonant combinations here is a sound that only exists in the Swedish language and therefore is impossible to convey to anybody. Uh, and then there's the O with the, I don't know what those are called in Swedish, but umlauts in German, which changes that name to like an or, an O from an or, you know? So, something like that. Anyway, I just think that's, you know, I'm not wild on how that went, you know? Now, on to the question. show. Something like that. Uh, Sam, a couple of off-seasons ago, we heard no end double exclamation oh, yeah, this one's points. for you yeah to your thoughts and considerations and choosing between Devonte smith and jalen waddle it was fairly obvious at the time that you with a decently wide margin preferred smith over waddle now that you've had some time to look at them in action in the nfl has your analysis on this changed and why slash why not thanks uh thanks again for the great content best victor sunner show hmm sunner show let's see what the model had with i don't that. know how to pronounce that it's a, it's a rough one what is the model what did the model say about them uh, both draftable, both both draftable. I mean, they're both okay, targetable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Both guys that I would draft. Uh-huh. Waddle is actually hundredth percentile production score. So this is weird here. Hmm. Here's what. So I have not made the adjustment for not having combine drills yet. Okay. So Waddle didn't have combine drills, therefore he's not getting much 
combine credit here. Right. If I just guessed at four four three five speed, how is his production higher than than Smith per play? On a per play basis, Waddle is spectacular. Yeah. I'm just saying. Just I'm just reading what's out here. Okay. So I'd have them very close, basically. Yeah. Let me do some. Let me let me check some. So some things. Okay. Out here. Well, the, the basic gist of this is on? after we've seen what a season and a half of them, how have my opinions changed? Um, I think they probably haven't changed too much on Smith. I think he's an exceptional route runner. Still, he's got great hands. He's great at sideline stuff. He separates. He works at the NFL level. We don't quite know yet what he has in terms of the the physical stuff like catch point ability we've seen flashes so far of his capacity to do that earlier in this season there was a, a game where he had a couple of spectacular you know catch point uh, high point type of plays last season it was there as well but that's the biggest question mark in his game still I think AJ Brown coming in will help him no end sort of not need to have that but still really like Devontae Smith and I think because of uh, Jalen Hurts playing better this year his the arrow is only pointing up for him. Waddle, my big concern coming out was we were projecting a lot of stuff that he'd never actually done. You know, when you look at his production in college, it was a ton of off coverage from the slot when 4-3 blazing speed and Alabama's offense basically just manufactured cheat code plays for him. Um, I think obviously we've seen that he can be a high-volume guy in the NFL. That was last year. And we've also seen that he has spectacular playmaking skills. But if you don't have... Tyreek Hill in that offense I'm still not convinced he can be like an elite number one guy which is kind of the same place I am for Devontae Smith so I guess after a year and a half it's closer than I thought it was at draft time but I still don't know if I would take Waddle over Smith I think they're both good yeah I agree they're both good they're both I, good and I'm not convinced either of them is an elite number one right now I made not, some not some right quick uh, estimates to Jalen Waddle's uh, measurables to yeah. just bake it in there and just based off my guesses it put them 0.3 percent away their percentiles 0.3 percent away okay waddle and Devonte. so a toss-up i would say it speeds the tiebreaker for me speeds the tiebreaker yeah because waddle i know i always say big playability but it's like it's funny because i can picture waddle behind the defense and running away from the defense but you don't picture Devonte smith week two whatever it was week three moss and people along the sideline for big catches and all that stuff right so i'm blinded by speed blinded by speed i would get i would take waddle i'll say this though jamar chase jalen waddle Devonte smith were the first three receivers in that draft followed by Kadarius tony rashad bateman mm. but uh the first three is looking it does look like real it was good. the correct three at least to focus it was on. the correct three tony i still don't know what to do with him bateman you know, looks good enough right more now. More explosive plays over the last, since they've come into the NFL. Devontae? Yeah. By a reasonable number. Usage. Usage, man. Usage. Yeah. <laughs> Can we do 30 minutes on how the NFL thinks an explosive run is 10 yards and no. an explosive pass is 15? Uh-uh. Nope. Can we discuss how nope. they equate 10 to 15? No. No, we can't. Somebody blamed Belichick for that. Is that Bel Did Belichick come up with that? I feels bad. Don't know or care. Now we can do explain the grade. Analytics dorks would tell you that 15 yards is more than 10. I, I think more than analytics people would tell you that. Anyone oh, doesn't that take can that? count. All right. 
How about this? Explain the grade and the PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. All right, explain the grade, Sam. We don't have a, uh, a little intro diddy yet because Tyler he just didn't do it, frankly. You know, I asked him this yeah, morning. We have a week. We have a week to it. get it. So next week. Um, Maybe. We'll one last email. This is sort of generic explain the grade thing before we get into the two specific people we're going to do. So this one is from Adam Dimsey, who starts with a phenomenally Australian intro of G'day, guys. G'day. Uh, been enjoying the segment on the Wednesday show. Well, being in Australia for me, it's the Thursday show. Two Australian emails today. Uh, where you explain the game grades. My question pertains to PFF's specific treatment of individual plays. In this week's review show, we referred to both Falcons cornerback uh, yeeting Scotty Miller out of bounds but not being penalized for it. Great use of the term yeeting. Yeeting. Uh, Cameron Dancer missing a tackle but then following it up with a strip and defensive touchdown. I was wondering how we grade these sorts of plays, specifically where a bad play that should have resulted in a penalty is a no-call and a great play in terms of outcome being only possible because of the same player making a bad play slash, you know, missed tackle earlier. Uh, on the flip side, would be rare, what if a player gets in a position to make a horrible play but can only do so off the back of a brilliant play? An example could be if a safety makes a great read, picks the ball, but then fumbles it and it's returned for a touchdown. Looking forward to the next few shows. Cheers, Adam. And he says, P.S., if we were to do a fundraiser where instead of being a forfeit, there was a raffle where the winner gets to be on the show, Similar to the guest predicting Thursday Night Football, he'd be all over and would donate twice as much. Nice. Do you have any answers? Uh, yeah, I mean, effectively... Try to grade things individually. We compartmentalize it, yeah. you know? So, Dancer is a perfect example. He would get a downgrade for getting beaten on the play, and then he gets a completely separate, independent, positive grade as if that had never happened, and then the net of the two is what he ends up with on the play, you know? Yeah. So, it's there isn't the sort of complicated... You basically just let it work itself out in the wash in terms of the net of the, the grades. But you grade each individual component of the thing and then see what it shakes out at. We get a lot of the questions about how do you grade bad calls, missed calls, yes. and all that stuff. And the answer is always it's got to be egregious, right? Really so bad. an egregious defensive pass interference. Um, I think when, when a receiver, when a corner gets away with like a little bit of a tug or some early contact but it's not egregious or blatant yeah we try not to we don't play official we don't play god in those situations necessarily because there is there's kind of this like baked in assumption that they got away with it. yeah there's these other things that we can't account for such as right they're studying officials right now if a corner is so good that he's actually been studying the back judge and the guys that, and they know how to get away with stuff yeah it would be it would be wrong of us. The line is different to over officiate that, right? Now that's different from straight tackling a guy, yes, on or whatever. Or in the Chris Jones case, if we think it's an egregious call, we can give him the full plus two for the play that should have been, and forget the roughing power. Or Grady Jarrett, like we didn't downgrade Grady Jarrett for tackling Tom Brady. Yeah, and so that in particular, we are much more inclined to remove what would be a downgrade for the penalty if the penalty is obviously horseshit versus inventing a penalty that didn't happen yeah. and charging them for a downgrade that didn't exist, you know? So there's the general assumption that if you didn't get called for a penalty, you did nothing wrong on the play and we're not going to invent a downgrade where one doesn't exist. 
um, because the line is different week to week. You know, it's it's a lot down to the officiating, and generally speaking, that's part of the game. If you can get away with it, more power to you. However, there are really bad calls by officiating, like the roughing the passers we talked about, where we will take the downgrade off because it's so absurd. Cool. The end. Good. Now, you want to do the official explain the grade for the individual players. Yeah. So this is the second time that this player is showing up. We're going to do Aiden Hutchinson. Um, First time we explained why in a three-sack game he did not have a great pass rush grade. Yes. That was week two, I believe. This week, he had one pressure, which was not a sack, and yet ends up with a PFF grade of 80.1. So how do you do that, Steve? Um, so I think this came up because um, it was mostly from Lions fans right off the bat. Like, they didn't see Aiden Hutchinson a lot. And I think there was the at game. least one play in there where he got fairly and, well smushed by um was it Trent Brown on the edge whoever it was bad play anyway the point is that was sort of shown on the broadcast which tends to have that highlight effect in your brain um we saw and, and he got he just kind of like uh, let Bailey Zappi break contain as well um so part of it is he only rushed the passer 23 times but he did have a couple quick wins in there that just didn't they were at the mercy of the throw I mean this is the consistent theme that we talk about here one of his first wins as well, I rewatched it a few times. The first time he got inside Trent Brown, Trent Brown, this is one he got away with the hold, mm. right? So we're like, we could see this. It's blatant. He tugs Aiden Hutchinson to the ground. It looks like he tripped. It was a pretty clean win inside. So he actually won a, a high percentage of his pass rushes. Another one he wins out to the outside on Trent Brown, but the ball's already out, right? So it's like we're, we're grading the interactions that they can control, and we're going to probably argue the opposite of this with the next guy right when it comes to the explain the grade stuff and then in the run game he actually did make a lot of plays now it was some of it was the second half right when the lines didn't have much of a chance but he was splitting double teams against tight ends and tackles getting in uh forcing cuts by the running back so Hutchinson did actually play the run pretty well in this game won a high percentage of his pass rushes relative to what he had done in previous games this season all right easy uh, next one is, this is a good one. I like this because Osa Adigizua, Cowboys defensive tackle, seven pressures against the Rams. Led the team. So Micah Parsons tearing things up. Uh, Demarcus Lawrence tearing things up. Adigizua with his seven pressures actually led the team. But he had a 70 pass rush grade, a 61 overall grade. Explain that away, Stephen. So it's kind of the opposite of the Hutchinson thing, right? Is when we focus more on the one-on-one interactions. And Osa had probably one really good clean win against David Edwards. Was there a sack in there? There was the one sack in there probably took five seconds. Matthew Stafford had already been pressured by two or three other players. So again, we're not downgrading the hustle play. He gets credit for the hustle play, but not as much as the emotional reaction that you get when you see this guy had a sack, Right. right? So he gets credit for it, but it's not the same as a dominant sack. And four of those seven pressures were either cleanup or pursuit pressures, which inherently in our system are saying you're going to get a little bit less credit for that. And it's because either the quarterback held the ball egregiously long and it was his fault or other people created pressure. And in this case, everybody on Dallas's line was creating pressure. Therefore, Odigizua kind of stumbled into some cleanup pressure in this game. The important part about the grade is that we are qualitatively measuring the individual play in addition to statistically recording just the the pressure right so a pressure a hurry 
the same play can range anywhere from a dominant immediate win, you know, a plus 1.5, just you, you Aaron Donald whooped the guy immediately and we're in the quarterback's lap after like a second and a half. It can also be like a zero, it can be a zero grade. It can be an expected play right. where you literally didn't do anything except we're standing in the way when the quarterback got flushed in your direction by multiple other guys in the pocket. You know what I mean? Like you've actually been stoned at the line by your guy, but the quarterback ends up getting driven into you and you just happen to be in front of him, which is pressure. It has to get recorded as a hurry, but you didn't do anything good. Right. So, so sometimes we give the, we were giving the stat, which is different from the grade. Yeah. So when you look at uh, Diggy Zua's pressures, seven of them, all you got to do is run through the pressures and take a look at what they actually are in this game. Um, the first two, I, I don't think, I think were what I was just talking about. I'm not sure they were even wins. Like he was getting wrecked at the line. And then Demarcus Lawrence in particular flushed the quarterback in his direction into him yeah. the third was a really slow win okay it's it's a positive grade it's a win it's a pressure but you know it took a long time to get there there would be a lot of plays where that does not impact it the fourth was a legit win the one you were talking about um against the guard fifth was a slow win off a stunt the sixth was barely pressure a cleanup play and then the seventh was that pursuit play after two other guys had already flushed matthew stafford from the pocket so seven pressures they all they're all pressures. They all get recorded. But when you try and actually grade the quality of those pressures, this was not a high-impact game from a Diggy Zua. But the other point is, you know, a 70 pass rush grade. That was good. It's okay. Right. That's fine. You know, the 61 grade overall is a lot more rank average, and that's because his run defense grade dragged it down. Yeah. So Got if you're just focusing on seven pressures, all we're saying is, yeah, it was decent, not great. And that's because of the seven pressures – one of them was a high-quality win. Yeah, the run defense is exactly what you said. Pulls down the overall grade. He did have a good, solid pass rush grade. We get asked a lot about ESPN's pass rush win rate, too. Mm -hmm. And the way I would describe that, what I know about that is they use like a pretty hard cutoff at two and a half seconds. So they're focused more on what would be in our world like our plus one type of wins, right? So they're just focused on that initial win. Yeah. I think where they miss out a little bit is they don't credit the hustle plays, They, which is fine, right? I mean, they're, they're measuring what they measure. In our system, we weigh the quick wins higher. At the same time, we also do give credit for the hustle plays. I imagine Odigizua did not show well in their pass rush win rate metric this week, whereas he actually would have showed better in our system because we're at least giving some credit for those hustle plays, including that cleanup sack there. So, um, Just before we wrap this up, I want to touch very briefly on Sauce Gardner's grade because a lot of people have asked for that. And I'm, we're not going to go through it as exhaustively as we did the other two, but I just want to point out the way a couple of plays can swing things. So there's a stat out there that Sauce, into his coverage in this game, gave up a passer rating of like 30. And, you know, there's that classic patented stat that I have of Your fault. 39.6. Is the pass rating of throwing the ball at the ground? Because he had an interception. Right. 34.2 was the pass rating of targeting Sauce Gardner in this game because he had an interception. Now, look, the interception was one of the most lame duck passes you're ever going to see put in the air by Skylar uh, Thompson. And, you know, yeah, he did fine. He gets credited. He gets a positive grade for picking it off. But, dude, that ball was in the air for a week and a half and was telegraphed, and it's not going to get... Hit. Like, the, he got hit. The quarterback yeah, yeah. got hit or got tipped. Right, and it, so it's yeah. not going to get as high a grade as other interceptions that are much more impressive plays from uh, a cornerback. Number two, his penalty in there is a pass interference play a penalty where he's toasted off the line by Tyreek Hill. He's desperately running to try and catch up. It's an underthrown pass, and it's the classic, 
you know, underthrown defensive pass interference. Now, Tyreek Hill played that weirdly. I think misjudged the flight completely and drew the penalty through just making a mess of it. But yeah. the point being, if we change the penalty yardage for actual yardage, you know? It's just we the say, way we track things. We don't put it in there. But if we, let's say for a second that we, that Tyreek Hill, because he roasts Sauce Gardner off the line, let's say the, the ball arrives, he catches it, and it's just a complete pass. And Sauce makes an immediate tackle. If we just give him that yardage, the penalty yardage, it doubles his passer rating allowed. You know what I mean? So we're not having this conversation of, well, it's 34. That's better than a, an incomplete pass. It's 60, and we're not even talking about it. Did um, we tweet out the stat about his passer rating then? So, no, I don't think this was us. This was somebody else. Oh, somebody um, just brought it up. There was another play in there as well where he's covering, I think, Tyreek Hill again. and they, The Dolphins motion Tyreek Hill in the backfield um, orbit motion where he goes you know, around the back. They give him the ball. He's running. Sauce is kind of running across the back of the defense trying to catch up with him and then just kind of stands there and watches Tyree Kill cut back inside him. And it's not even, it's not a missed tackle. It's barely even an, like an over pursued play. He just, just I, I don't even know how to describe it. He just, Tyree Kill goes by him. Yeah, Tyree Kill ends up going past him as if he's not even there. That gets a pretty heavy downgrade for us. And yet it's the kind of stat for, it's the kind of play that won't show up anywhere. You know what I mean? Because he doesn't miss a tackle. It's not a coverage play. Right. But whatever Tyreek Hill gained on that play, he gained because Sauce Gardner opened the gate and sort of waved him past. You know what I mean? So anyway, it, there's it's, sauces. It's what I've said before. So we've we I don't we didn't invent those stats, but we push things like targets and passer rating allowed and all that stuff. We push that more than anyone else. Sure. So we've created these stats. <laughs> but at the same time, as I've said before, I don't think there's a bigger disconnect between stats and what actually happens on plays in any sport than like football right there's a disconnect there um so the stats are there they're nice most of the time they back things up right if you go back historically and you say look at all of our highest graded coverage corners what's their passer rating against what's their whatever metric you want to use it's probably good but especially when you get into small sample sizes they're completely skewed by various things so stats and grades don't always match up. And I think this sport, more than any other, you're going to get that disconnect because there's other people involved in these, you know, in these plays. Yeah. And, and we love Sauce. You know, he's absolutely. had a great start to he, his career. He looks like a fantastic cornerback. But I think there are plays in this game that, that are important that won't show up in the stat sheet. And that's why he ends up with, a, you know, 34 passer rating into his coverage. But that doesn't, like, the, the pass interference thing is legit. Okay, you can quibble about the actual bit at the end where Tyreek Hill makes a weird adjustment to it and runs into him and, oh, that's, that's a crazy pass interference call. Forget that. Like, go back to the start of this play and just watch what happened off the line. Right. You're like, okay, from that moment on its own, he's probably getting a negative grade. He's probably getting a negative grade. Now, that's whether Skylar Thompson hits him in stride yeah. or underthrows it or – if Tua was the quarterback and hit it, you know, we're trying to and that, separate those as much and as if, possible. And if, look, if that's a dime, you know, if Thompson not just gets the ball there, but if he actually hits it in stride, if it's a perfect play, not only is it a big play, it could go all the way. Well, you know, it's more, be, yeah, it's more than just the pass Right, that could be yard. a set, like whatever, I don't know where that was in the field, but that could, it was pretty close to the goal line, right? Like they, Miami was backed up somewhere. Yeah, it was at the five or ten. Right, or so that could be, like that could be a monster touchdown is what I'm saying. And if that's on a stat sheet, we're not talking about a passer rating of 34 talk about a pass rating of like 100 yeah so i think that's a good explanation it's a good corner good young corner mm -hmm. but uh there were some plays 
some plays we didn't like. And in particular, when you're playing corner, you know, those, it, this is playing corner might be the hardest job in the NFL because one play changes the, the story of the game. Not just, you know, like this, but remember last year we were talking on the preview about how um, Marshawn Lattimore versus DK Metcalf. Lattimore effectively eliminated Metcalf from the game, except one play, which was a big touchdown. Yeah. You know, well, what does that do? That changes the story from Lattimore in a dominant landslide to, eh, it's about 50-50, you know? Yeah. Um, there was one, the, the Jalen Ramsey versus Tyreek Hill thing. Again, Jalen Ramsey pretty much eliminated Tyreek Hill, switched off for one play, and Tyreek Hill's down the sideline for a 30-yard catch, you know, immediately. And it's like that goes from pure dominance to, eh, it was pretty close. It was an even battle, you know? So, like, yeah. as much as you sort of say, ah, it was one play. Like, one play playing corner can be the difference. So, there you go. Pretty good. I like that you threw Sauce back in there, too, to explain that. Because we did get a lot of questions. So, Lions fans, Jets fans, Cowboys fans, a little explanation on the grade. Of course, you can get all those grades and stats. PFF.com, PFF Plus, and go check that out. All right, we're going to get to Robert Mays right now, previewing Thursday Night Football, getting his thoughts on Justin Fields, the Bears, and um, as we've been doing, we're just going to finish with the interview. Yeah. We're going to leave. Gonna we're going to say bye now, and we're going to finish with Robert. Yeah, and then we're just not going to come back. We're not going to come back. Until tomorrow. Let's go. Our day's over. Work day, done. All right, let's get to Robert May's preview in Thursday Night Football, and we'll see everyone else Thursday previewing all of the Week 6 NFL action. All right, we are excited to be joined by Robert Mays. Do I have to read the way you, you wrote the intro for me, Sam? I, I put, host of the juggernauts that is the athletic football podcast and longtime friend of the show that's the intro for you robert welcome that's so silly I, I, that's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous and i blame stan for that so thank you guys very much it is nice to be here it is nice to see both of you but a juggernaut nonsense you're just like us a top five to ten nfl podcast in the world <laughs> right depending on when you look at the uh, the ranking list yeah we're we're number one in the p in the nfl podcast featuring an irish host so tough to compete with for you guys, but you guys are right up there, you know, with us in NFL podcasts. Yeah, I we're number one in the NFL podcast that features a former backup division one quarterback that makes a lot of forced B movie references in the show. And that's Nate. So Nate, yeah. we're all good. We're all number one in our hearts in some way. Well, we love having you as part of the show, Robert. And of course, you are a Bears fan. I see the helmet in the background here, and it is Bears Commanders. Um should we give full disclosure he was the backup option this week I mean, you can if you like i think sure sure okay we were we were really trying to get big cat and pft on the show just because it's their you know their teams but they're so busy uh, that sounds exactly right okay yeah. i am the podcast that you stumble onto when you just want to listen to part of <laughs> my take but don't know how to find it we're uh we're fairly new to the whole you know hosting guests and, and being serious with interviews and stuff and steve seems to have a remarkable trend recently of bringing on a guest and then insulting them in a variety of different ways yeah. you know right up top usually we believe in brutal honesty here it's like liar liar it's important to know that I am very cognizant of my place within the sports media world. Like there are no kind of illusions about where we all sit here. So I'm doing just fine. I, I didn't take any offense to that whatsoever. Okay, great. So despite all that, here's what I'm really excited about because you know, you're a Bears fan and, and when they drafted Justin Fields, you know, people that follow you on Twitter, you're, we're kind of like in your mind, right? As you, you get like the next franchise quarterback. And I think you went to his debut game and all that stuff, right? Like, all right, we're going to watch our next guy here. How are you feeling about Justin Fields right now? Where do you think he is in his development? You know, how, how have things changed with your th view of Justin Fields now since he's been drafted? 
It's a, it's a week to week thing. All right. <laughs> uh, I think if you had asked me that eight days ago, I would have been in not full blown panic mode, but 80% of the way there. And then I thought he played much better on Sunday. Thought that was his best game that he had this season. And we talked about it on our show on Sunday night. I think he was much more decisive in the ways that you want to see him be decisive, even when he was taking off, you know, how quickly he was ripping some of those throws, the ball placement on some of them. I don't know about you guys. I just, I think that I've become more reticent about throwing dirt on any sort of quarterback development stories in the last couple of years, even though we do have these success stories, we're like, all right, Justin Herbert is full blown good right away. No questions asked, nothing to be concerned about. But then you watch what's happened with Jalen hurts and even somebody like Tua and like the time it takes for some of these guys to settle in. So I've been tapping the brakes a little bit more than I would. And especially because it's the bears, I'm also baking more hope into it (laughs) than I probably would in any other situation. So it's a complicated stew. I guess my emotions about Justin Fields is the long way of putting it. Like I've been thinking some of the same things, except I've been focusing a little bit more on sort of how important the environment is around quarterbacks, Mm -hmm. you know, and how how much that impacts development. And you look at um, some of the the quarterback stories. Like, well, does Josh Allen succeed if he's get if he's drafted by? you know, one of the other teams in the top 10 that year, one team that didn't do what the Bills did in terms of building around him and giving him a phenomenal position. And then you look at the sort of difference between the Browns and the Panthers and what that's done to Baker Mayfield. But how does that make you feel about what the Bears have done around Justin Fields? Because I was talking a lot in the offseason about how their moves screamed, we don't really buy into the Justin Fields thing, or at least we don't buy into it enough to change what we believe the kind of the textbook way of rebuilding a franchise is. Now we're, you know, a few weeks into the season and we're kind of seeing the realization of that, right? Which is he doesn't have an offensive line in front of him. He doesn't have receivers to throw to. There's nobody on defense that's enough to elevate the play of that to carry the team. So even if Justin Fields was good, I'm not sure we'd see it right now. I understand why they didn't leverage themselves and really stretch and push to say, we have to add weapons and we have to add an offensive line around him because here's the long and the short of it. This franchise, this front office that is in place now, they aren't tied to Justin Fields' success or failure. Sure. And I think that matters. How desperate and how urgent you are to surround somebody with pieces if whether that guy sinks or swims ultimately determines your long-term outlook with a franchise i think is going to change the way that you approach it like brandon bean chose josh allen like they have to do everything they can to make sure that josh allen succeeds chris greer was part of the team that chose tua howie roseman chose jalen hurts like all of these guys are incentivized to make sure that those guys are successful the bears are in such a strange situation because if i've said this a million different times but it's always worth repeating if you look at all of kind of the signifiers of where a team is in their team building process. The bears are right there with the Falcons, the giants, these teams that are in deep, deep rebuilds. I'm pretty sure bears are second or third in the NFL on the dead money. They took on before the season started and they were dead last in cash spending coming into the year. The bears are rebuilding. They are in a full scale rebuild mode. That team that Ryan Poles took over had no money and no draft picks and no talent, which is a really hard thing to do. (laughs) It's hard to screw up that bad and leave yourself in that sort of situation. And that's why you have to trade Khalil Mack for a second round pick and eat all that dead money. And when you're sitting there as Ryan Poles and you have those second round picks without a first because you traded it for Justin Fields, like, all right, 
do we just draft the guys we think are the best players because we have no players? And I can understand that argument, and that's what they did. And it doesn't have to be a one year we have to do all these things to make sure our quarterback is the guy. The Dolphins didn't necessarily do that with Tua, right? Their rookie year wasn't spent scrambling for all these resources to surround him. They did it over a couple of years. Josh Allen and the Bills were the same way. Like, think about what Josh Allen's weapons look like in year one, year two. The offensive line wasn't full of superstars. They were also in this kind of awkward rebuild mode where they had to dig out from under all of that dead money. So I know it looks really bad right now, but as long as you're not putting him in a situation where it's actively detrimental to the way that he's developing, you have a bunch of resources next year. You have $115 million in cap space. You have all your picks back. Can that be the time where it's like, all right, let's start to build this thing up and see what we really have in him. So I know it looks really bad on the outside, but I understand how this group got there. I mean, that, that was my point. A lot of the offseason was that this was not an indicator of Justin Fields. It was an indicator of a new regime coming in in the old regime, as you said, leaving them with uh, not a lot of cap flexibility and no draft capital whatsoever. And a roster that has literally gotten worse since 2018, you know, every single season since their division title. So that part I get. And um, I also get your point as well. Justin Fields, you know, maybe not the guy that they need to build around. One more Fields question, but before we get into the game and the rest of the roster, sometimes quarterbacks come into the NFL and I'm surprised by their style. You know, so you've got Mm -hmm. like, I I thought Andrew Luck was going to come in and be this Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, quick hitting, get rid of the ball. And he was actually closer to like a Big Ben, holding the ball long and you know, trying to make big plays. And Deshaun Watson was like this quick hitting Clemson quarterback. Before you know it, he's just, you know, extending plays. And Justin Fields' style is closer to like a Lamar Jackson. No, it's not even Lamar. I mean, he's just running way more than I had expected. I thought Fields was going to be this very good passer hold the ball a little bit too long, and then run when needed. Are you surprised that he's run, scrambled as much as he has, been a part of the run game as much as he has, and not focused on the arm and the accuracy that was so good coming out of Ohio State? It's an interesting question, and and I'll say this. I'm not because of what I think the running is symptomatic of. Yeah. When you watched him in college, he did hold on to the ball. He was that kind of big game hunter that was looking to push the ball downfield. It was methodical the way that he would make some decisions in the pocket. And that has continued. The differences between Ohio State and with the Bears, at Ohio State, there was someone running open on every single one of those plays as he held the ball in the pocket. There isn't in Chicago. So I think the running is a product of him having no better answers after nobody being open and him holding onto the ball for way too long. And that's my problem is that when you look at what happened last year and even what happened this year, the catastrophic plays are catastrophic, and they are numerous. I'm looking at the numbers right now. I mean, this, I can't believe this is right. He's a 17% sack percentage this year, <laughs> according to Pro Football Reference. Like, that's awful. And when you compare that to somebody like a Josh Allen, who is at you know 8%, even at its worst early in his career, those are kind of those underlying numbers that give me pause and make me really concerned, is that the bad plays are really prominent. There's so many of them, and I think they're a product of his inability to get through things quickly. By all accounts, he's a really smart guy. Everyone says that. And I think there's just a problem with translating whatever's on the board and understanding what you're supposed to do to making those decisions quickly and correctly in real time as the bullets start flying. Mm-hmm. And that was probably my number one concern about him coming in, which is how methodical and slow the process felt at times. 
And that has continued. And I think that's why he's running so often is that's the breaking case of emergency when that stuff starts to deteriorate. And it's such an important point, the one that you bring up, which is how much that's affected by the supporting cast and the guys around him. Like when you're the best team and your talent level is higher than the opposition, you can get away with that. And it doesn't look like a massive problem when you have one of the worst supporting casts in the league all of a sudden you're doing that all the time like you're leaning into the bad uh trends or bad traits that you have in your game and the whole thing just compounds and makes it worse um i want to turn ahead to the thursday night game though because we were talking before we came on that you know last week's game indianapolis denver one of the worst games of football you know you're ever gonna see it was miserable but even though washington and chicago don't look dramatically better on paper we've come to the conclusion that these teams are at least entertainingly bad and that will make this game fun to watch i think that's totally fair (laughs) when you watch carson wentz and you watch washington's offense right now as long as he has time to throw they've been pretty entertaining they have decent receiving options they have no qualms about slinging it all over the place i got good news for you Bears pass rush is not good. Mm. So he's probably going to have some time to throw in this game, even when you factor in some of the offensive line injuries and just inconsistencies into the mix. And on the other side of it, I don't think Justin Fields is going to have as comfortable a time as the pocket. You know, even the guys that we don't know about on Washington, their pass rushers have been playing pretty well over the last couple of weeks against a Bears offensive line. We don't like that might be a concern, but Washington's secondary is no great shakes. So I have to assume that the Bears are going to be able to create at least one or two explosive plays in this game. So while the, the football is going to be bad, I think it will at least be watchable in a way that last Thursday's game was not. Yeah, there's storylines here. Fields development is always something. And as you mentioned, Wentz and you know the fact that the, the commanders have been pretty aggressive. Um, it, for rebuilding teams every year, I, we, we do a show where we're trying to either fix a team or preview the teams and all that stuff. And for seven or eight teams around the league, I'm, you know, maybe maybe fewer, it's like, hey, they're really rebuilding. So as a fan, you want to just keep an eye on who's going to be a part of the rebuild. So as a Bears fan, who are you excited about? Like who's on this roster as they're turning this thing over that you're excited about going forward? Who else, who can we watch Thursday night that is going to be a Bear two or three years from now when they're competing for division titles? I think that the two rookie defensive backs are hopefully in that equation, right? Kyler Gordon, Jaquan Brisker, they've both had uneven starts to their careers, which understandable, you know, their rookie defensive backs is always kind of a mixed bag. Even guys that we're excited about, it's often a little bit touchy early on. So hopefully those guys, and then I want to see what happens, you know, with guys like Braxton Jones, you know, the left tackle that the bears drafted in the seventh round this year, he's uh, seventh or fifth round. I can't even remember now. He, he, he's been the starter from day one. They went out and they got Riley Reef late in free agency, late almost in, into training camp with a thought that maybe he would start. And I think they looked at their situation and thought, he's not going to be that much of a better solution in the short term than Braxton Jones. We might as well see if this guy can develop. So if you can hit on somebody like that, that's what this team is doing. Like they're just trying to see where they can unearth players. There's a reason that they put in more waiver claims than any other team in the yep. NFL this year. There just aren't that many spots on the roster where there are surefire starters or guys that can't be supplanted. And that's why you're seeing the amount of youth out there that you're seeing. So hopefully it's guys like that. Hopefully it's Gordon and Brisker and maybe a couple more, but I think we're going to see a very, very different bears roster next May 1st 
than we see right now. Yeah, left tackle Braxton Jones, fifth rounder, Southern Utah, coming off a career high, 83.8 PFF grade, having a good solid season. He could be a huge find. You usually don't stop. You don't find starting tackles in the fifth round very often. So something to be excited that's why about. you. That's why you just see what happens. Yeah. Like, and I understand giving him that opportunity because, like, if you're going to be bad anyway, you might as well see if that guy can start. I knew he was a fifth round pick. It's, they had so many late round offensive line picks because that's what. Oh they yeah, they, they, traded they traded down a million times. And they drafted like twenty of them, so I, I get them mixed up. But that's that's definitely something that you're looking at. And then what can happen with the interior of the offensive line next offseason? Right? They moved Tevin Jenkins inside. It's been whatever. Sam Mustafer was not supposed to be the starting center of this team. He's had to be because of Lucas Patrick hurting his hand. It's it just been a rotating cast on the inside because they're trying to find solutions, and that's where this team is. They're trying to find solutions. And like Dominique Robinson has been one of their most hmm. encouraging players on defense. He's flashed as a pass rusher. I mean, that's it's not a good situation. Like, this is not a good football team right now. Yeah, I've actually been vaguely encouraged by the play of the offensive line, given the challenges that they're dealing with as well. Because as much as Justin Fields is being let down by the lack of support around him, the way Justin Fields is playing right now is not helping the offensive line in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, is making their life more difficult. So the idea that guys like Braxton Jones is actually playing okay despite that, I think is massively encouraging for them going forward. Um, looking at how they match up against Washington, you mentioned before that, you know, when, when Wentz has got a bit of time and Chicago has no pass rush, you know, the, the lowest pressure rate in the NFL, they don't blitz either, so they're not, they're not even trying to scheme up pressure. Um, how are the Bears going to slow down what can at least be an explosive Washington offense to try and prevent this becoming a game where they have to hang in a shootout with Justin Fields and a misfiring offense? I think the biggest thing is whether Jalen Johnson can play. Because what happened last week with Jalen Jones against the Vikings, I felt bad for him. I mean, you get thrust into that spot as a starter against the team with Justin Jefferson, and they just picked on him relentlessly throughout that entire game. It didn't matter if he was lined up outside, whether he was in the slot. They tried to move him to the other side of the field at one point. So we're talking about guys you can rely on on this team. Jalen Johnson is one of like the four or five you'd feel excited about, even in the short term. So if he can play in this game, I think that makes a huge, huge difference. If not, you're looking at a secondary that's Kendall Vildor and a rookie Kyler Gordon and Jalen Jones against a group of Washington receivers, that's actually pretty good. So I would be concerned about that when you factor in the lack of pass rush. All right. So we ask all of our guests on Wednesday to make a pick. Do you have, uh, do you have our records offhand, Sam? Last week, have done? last week was the first week where we all chose the same side and we all lost. So our guests are currently 500, two and two. All right, so we've got, as of right now, per DraftKings Sportsbook, commanders by one on the road against the Bears. So, are you allowed to make a pick on the Bears? Any rules against this? No, there's no, no rules against that. <laughs> I'm picking not. the Bears. There's no downside. <laughs> if they lose, it doesn't matter. And if they win, I feel better about myself. Perfect. Yeah. That was like Joe Thomas picked the, uh, the Browns by a billion when he was over here. So, mm. you know, we, we allow biases here. It's great. Well, it worked out for him. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the one of the successful picks we've had was Joe Thomas taking the Browns, whatever the number is. They didn't cover the billion, but you know I get it. That's true. So uh, Robert's got the Bears. Where are you going with it, Sam? Uh, I am going Washington. I think that their offense can actually function, and I'm not convinced Chicago's can. And uh, good news for you, Robert. I'm also going with the Commanders. I've hit on like six games all season, so this will be great. Looking for my seventh win here in Week Six. Phenomenal right of there. the end. Yeah, really doing a great job here. Uh, give me the Commanders over the bears because of all the reasons you just said there's not a lot of uh talent on chicago side rebuilding we're looking for those young players who are going to be a part of the future 
That's yeah, it. they're not a good team. And I am a little bit concerned. We're doing a live podcast after the game is over. We're doing those on YouTube pretty much every week this year on the Athletic Football Show. And having to do a pod right after a Bears game in national tele- on national television in prime time while everyone is watching, I feel like I'm going to be in a pretty fragile emotional state. So Sports. if you guys want to see someone un- unravel yeah. in front of a live audience, you guys can tune in tomorrow. Sports have a phenomenal capacity to impact one's state of being in a way I don't think anything else can. Like, there are games, and whether it's NFL, whether it's rugby, whether, like... Baseball. Yeah. Um, that can, like... It'll affect my mood for days, days. Like I, so I was on um, the road trip that we did with my dad in the summer, right? Driving three and a half thousand miles in an E-type Jag across the country. On day one or two, Leinster, my rugby team, was playing in the European final. I was getting live text updates as we were driving through the California desert. And then eventually they lose a last minute heartbreaker. I was in a crappy mood on that road trip for like two days off the back of that. Like, that's how much sports can ruin people. Yeah, so that'll be Robert right after the game. Yeah, yeah. He's doing night. a podcast in that state. Yeah. Going head-to-head it's with good, us. It's good content. That's all that matters. <laughs> that's great. So tune in. Tell everybody where uh, where they can find your top five NFL podcast. Uh, it's on the Athletic Football Show feed. Uh, wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify. Uh, we do a show every single day. And we have, I think, six shows a week during the week now. So you can. there's no shortage of options there. And then we do our live recaps on Sunday night after the game on YouTube and then Thursday night as well on our YouTube channel. So if you guys want to check it out, we'd love that. Okay. So we're brutally honest here. So you guys have made the decision to start a podcast that has different guests and you rotate and you're doing it daily. That was like a no, no a couple of years ago in, in podcast world. What made you guys do this, right? What made you uh, evolve the podcast to where it is right now? What? I think that we, you know, we were looking at the schedule, uh, after year one we did it three days a week and last year we were going to move to four days a week because i just thought we needed a preview show we didn't have a friday podcast in year one i got hired like two weeks before the season started and we just kind of flying by the seat of our pants and as we were planning on four days a week i was like why would we just do it daily then like four days a week and not five is so dumb we'll figure out a way to do a show on monday into tuesday and we did and as far as the different voices go i just I like to have a different collection of voices on the show. I like to have different perspectives. I like to have things framed in a different way. I I want people to leave the five or six podcasts that they listen to every week and feel like we talked about the NFL from as many different ways and as many different directions that you can. Like there's nothing about the league, any considerations that you would have that you walk away from a week of listening to the athletic football show. And you didn't feel like we touched on that. And I think we fail at that pretty consistently, but that is in the abstract, the goal. That is the goal. Love it. Thank you, Robert. Everybody go check out the athletic football podcast and yeah, good luck to the bears tomorrow night. Thanks guys.